Good morning to you. If I were to ask you the question, what is a minister according to Scripture, where would you go in the Bible to answer that question? And I think when most Christians think of the role of the minister as it pertains to Scripture, we usually gravitate to the pastoral epistles. We think of uh, 1 Timothy 3 and Titus 1. If pressed a little further, many Christians would take me to 1 Peter 5 and its counsel regarding elders. Sometimes, if pressed further, saints will use negation to explain the situation, and they will go to places like uh, 2 Peter and the book of Jude, so that false teachers we are careful to exclude. Very well-versed saints will uh, remember the enjoinder at the end of Romans regarding ministers. At the end of Romans, the Bible says, I appeal to you, brothers, to watch out for those who cause divisions and create obstacles contrary to the doctrine you've been taught. Avoid them. For such persons do not serve our Lord Jesus Christ, but their own appetites. By smooth talk and flattery, they deceive the hearts of the naive. If I said, well, where in the Old Testament would you go? And perhaps you might go to the many leadership lessons that we see in the book of Nehemiah. Uh, one place I've never had a saint take me when we need to scripturally evaluate ministry is 1 Corinthians 4. And that is a pity because it contains a bevy of veracities that explain Christian ministry succinctly but, but robustly. And so today we will rectify our being remiss in this. We have already invested three weeks in 1 Corinthians 4. We've learned much about humility and we've learned uh, that God's evaluation of the Christian is different than sometimes how we see it. But today I want us to return to this deep biblical well and take one final drink from its life-giving waters as we seek to discover the answer to the question, what is a minister according to Scripture? And we're going to delve into a forgotten text for a bit of needed context. Uh, 1 Corinthians 4 is found on page 1212 of the Blue Pew Bible in front of you. If you don't have a copy of Scripture, I'd encourage you to take that, turn to page 1212, and we will be in 1 Corinthians 4. As we turn in the Word of the Lord to 1 Corinthians 4, let's turn to the Lord of that Word and ask Him to bless our time together in prayer today. Lord Jesus, we invite you as Lord of the Church to speak to us, your Church, today. We pray, Lord Jesus, that you might help us to see from a, a neglected text, important context, that we would answer the question, what is a minister according to Scripture from the light of your Word? We pray, Lord, that we would be uh, careful to put in our pulpits and over our families people who embody what you ask of us and not what we would perhaps want if we were designing it. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So the Word of God says this in 1 Corinthians chapter 4. This is how one should regard us as servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. Moreover, it's required of a steward that they be found faithful. But with me it is a very small thing that I should be judged by you or in any human court if in fact I 
do even judge myself. For I'm not aware of anything against myself, but I'm not thereby acquitted. It is the Lord who judges me. Therefore, do not pronounce judgment before the time, before the Lord comes, who will bring to light the things now hidden in darkness and will disclose the purposes of the heart. And then each one will receive his recommendation from God. Now I've applied all these things to myself and Apollos for your benefit, brothers, that you may learn by us not to go beyond what is written, that none of you may be puffed up in favor of one against another. For who sees anything different in you? What do you have that you did not receive? And if then you received it, why do you boast as though you did not receive it? Already you have all you want. Already you've become rich. Without us, you've become kings. And would that you did reign, so that we might share the rule with you. For I think that God has exhibited us apostles as last of all, like men sentenced to death, because we've become a spectacle to the world, to angels and to men. We're fools for Christ's sake. But you are wise in Christ? We are weak, but you are strong. You are held in honor, but we in disrepute. To the present hour, we hunger and thirst, we're poorly dressed and buffeted and homeless, and we labor, working with our own hands. When reviled, we bless. When persecuted, we endure. When slandered, we entreat. We have become, and still, like the scum of the world and the refuse of all things. I did not make, write these things to make you ashamed, but to admonish you as beloved children. For though you have countless guides in Christ, you do not have many fathers. For I became your father in Christ Jesus through the gospel. I urge you then, be imitators of me. This is why I sent you Timothy, my beloved and faithful child in the Lord, to remind you of my ways in Christ, as I teach them everywhere in every church. Some are arrogant, as though I was not coming among you. But I will come to you soon, if the Lord wills, and I will find out, not the talk of those arrogant people, but their power. For the kingdom of God does not consist in talk, but in power. What do you wish? Shall I come to you with a rod, or shall I come to you with love in a spirit of gentleness? What's a biblical minister according to Scripture? Well, 1 Corinthians 4 eliminates our guesses with a series of about nine S's. And so, there's going to be an alliterated sermon. I know that you feel like that's extra value for you. Uh, and, and it's in your bulletin. If you open it up, there are nine principles from this passage. And the first S we must consider today is that biblical ministers are servants of Christ. They're not superstars. They're not celebrities. They're not self-seekers. Biblical ministers, according to the Bible, according to this passage, biblical ministers are servants. Listen to the very first verse of our passage. This is how one should regard us, Paul and Apollos, servants of Christ. Now, a few Sundays back, we mentioned how Paul didn't use the usual word for, for servant in verse 1. The usual word is diakonos. It's, he uses it elsewhere in the book. He uses it back in chapter 3. But instead here in this verse, in, in verse 1, he, he uses a richer, rarer, and much more humble word. The word is huperetes. Now, huperetes literally means an under rower. An under rower. Now, it's a nautical word taken from the Greek triremes. And, and the trireme was a ship that sailed not solely by its sails, but also uh, from the ranks of rowers. There were 
three ranks of 60 rowers. That is, there were 180 rowers. And the lowest rank was on the lowest deck. And that was the huperetes, the under rower. Now, if you contrast the Holy Spirit's word choice in the pen of Paul, huperetes, and how the Corinthians in their carnality viewed the celebrity pastors that they followed, contrast this. They were saying, I follow Paul. I follow Apollos. I follow Cephas, the rock of the church. As though those men had some corner of sort of special celebrity status with Jesus. But Paul says, no, 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 no. We are slaves for Christ. Huperetes. You see, the under-rower had an unglamorous job. He rode tirelessly. He got no change in scenery, just the sweaty, hairy neck of the guy in front of him. He didn't even get to set the pace in the rowing. Uh, these ships had 120 slave rowers, three decks of 60, uh, excuse me, uh, uh, 180 slave rowers, and then there were 20 soldiers on each ship, and they each had a whip in their grip to keep those under rowers in line all the time. But there was also another person, and that was the drummer. And the drummer, uh, at the behest of the captain, the drummer would set the cadence. And every time the beat came, the rowers would row. You only rowed as the drummer told you, and he only drummed as the captain told him. So what does this mean for a biblical minister? Is the biblical minister the, the chief vision caster? Um, the sage on the stage who, who sets the agenda? Uh, the, the wonder kid who with a, a pithy slogan moves the masses through slick jargon? Well, here in Corinthians, God's word chooses the word huperetes, and it means, you know what, the pastor doesn't really set the course or the direction or even the speed of the ship. Rather, it's always going to be the captain of the ship who sets the speed, the course, and the direction. Biblical ministers must understand that the church belongs to Jesus. Jesus knows the destination. Therefore, Jesus gets to set our direction. And friends, Jesus is in charge of our pace and our progression as a congregation. And so woe to the under-rower who thinks he has more wisdom than the captain. Because, friends, that's mutiny, not ministry, isn't it? Hmm. And yet, so many today, we want to we reinvent the mission and even the message of the Lord Jesus. Uh, and, and we call this enterprise a church that's been contextualized. But it's not the call of the under-shepherd in Scripture. The under-shepherd serves the good shepherd. For it was the good shepherd that laid down his life for the sheep. He is the Lord of the church. He is the one that gets to set the agenda in his house. And so it shouldn't matter to a, to a faithful under-rower, whatever the, the headwinds of the culture come against the ship, and whatever waves buffet the side of the ship, what he needs to do is, is what we all need to do. What it says in the sign when you come to Calvary, we need to fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. Jesus is the captain of our souls. His word is our compass, and his spirit is our drumbeat that tells us the pace to row. That brings us to our second principle today. 
Biblical ministers are stewards. Biblical ministers are stewards of the mysteries of God, and friend, they're accountable to God for their stewardship of those mysteries. Biblical ministers are stewards of the mysteries of God, and therefore they're accountable to God for their stewardship. Again, look at the very first verse. This is how one should regard us as servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. Now, stewards is a translation of the Greek word oikonomos. Uh, oikonomos is a fusion of the word oikos, meaning house, and nomos, meaning law. And so literally, uh, this was the law of the house, the person who was the law within the house. The steward was a slave, just like all the others in the house. But, but it was an especially faithful slave who the master put over all the affairs of the house. In the Old Testament, one of the first ones we meet like this is Joseph. Joseph was a steward over whose house? Over Potiphar's house in the book of Genesis. And, and that gave Joseph authority over everything the master had except for his wife. He wasn't supposed to touch Potiphar's wife. The assets never belonged to Joseph, even for a second. They were always his master Potiphar's. But Joseph was accountable to diligently, carefully, scrupulously manage the master's assets. In fact, a, a, a biblical steward is supposed to grow the estate. He's not supposed to let it languish in, in, in disuse or disrepair. And so, scripturally speaking, biblical ministers are stewards. They, they manage the house of God. And that's why the Bible uses the word overseer. It's used synonymously in Scripture in the book of Acts for a pastor, an elder, overseer. So the pastor or the elder, he, he oversees the smooth running of God's house. In what way? So that everything, the Bible says, is done decently and in order. That, that it's working according to God's plan. Not our plan, not today's plan, not the latest, slickest thing that came from some denominational entity, but, but from the Word of God as led by the Spirit of God amongst the people of God. Now, 1 Corinthians 4 specifies that a biblical minister's stewardship is not merely general management in the house of God, but, but it's management over something highly specific, and don't miss it. This is how one should regard us as servants of Christ and stewards of what? The mysteries of God. So that's the audio part. You come back with the implied answer. All you got to do is read. It's, I'm not going to give you hard stuff. I'm not going to ask you what the atomic weight of barium is. That's 137.33. It's like one of the only two things I remember from chemistry class. I'm going to ask you simple questions. You can respond. Uh, they're stewards of what? The mysteries of God. Okay, so that's why other passages tell us that biblical ministers ought to devote themselves, the prime job, the chief thing, the thing that takes most of their time, is to devote themselves to the public reading of Scripture, to preaching, and to teaching. That's the primary job. Now, now in Scripture, when we think of the mysteries of God, you need to throw out what we think of mystery. In Scripture, mystery is not something unknown because it's unknowable. No, biblically, mystery is something God must reveal to us or we would not discover it by our own imagination, ingenuity, and careful thinking. And the word in the Greek is mysterion, and uh, Jesus tells us in Matthew 13, 11, 
in Mark 4.11 and in Luke 8.10 that through his parables to you have been given the mysterion, the secret, the mystery of heaven. Therefore, it's something God must reveal to us, the, the mystery of heaven. Jesus is giving it to us. He's revealing it to us. Paul uses this same word in Romans 11 to explain his God's future plan for national Israel in the unfolding drama of redemption. Romans 11.25 says, Lest you be wise in your own sight, I don't want you to be unaware of this mystery. See, it's not something you can't know. It's something God has to show. Here's the mystery, brothers. There's a partial hardening that's coming upon Israel that, that right now there's not going to be a lot of receptivity. There'll be individuals that get saved, but there's not going to be a huge receptivity among Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles have come in. Right now in the church age, it's, it's often the Gentiles who are coming in. And in this way, all Israel will be saved. God has a plan for Jew and Gentile, and, and that plan will happen. And that's a mystery Paul was explaining. Now already in 1 Corinthians 2, in verse 7, we are told that through the preaching of Christ crucified, we impart a secret and hidden wisdom of God, which God decreed before the ages for our glory, that none of the rulers of this age understood, for if they had, they wouldn't have crucified the Lord of glory. But as it was written, what no eye has seen, what no ear has heard, nor the heart of man imagined, what God has prepared for those who love him. These things God has revealed to us through the Spirit. So what's a mystery? The mystery, biblically, is something that is true that God has to disclose to us. That's the pastor's job. That's the minister's job. The minister's job is to share the mysteries, to steward the mysteries of the Word of God. So that means the, the minister, a biblical minister, is more of a, of a curator of God's truth than an inventor of new truths. Now, to an age where we like to hear whatever tickles our ear and whatever's new and exciting is what draws the headlines, the biblical minister is more of a curator of God's truth than, than an inventor of new truth. Biblical ministers are stewards of the mysteries of God, which means they must be faithful to the Word of God, not novel with the Word of God. We're to contend for the faith that was once and for all entrusted to all the saints. And so, what does this mean in 2019? It means that, that at the end of the day, it is not your pastor's eloquence or his brilliance or his confidence that makes him a biblical minister. It's his faithfulness to the Bible. What makes a biblical minister? Fidelity to the Bible. For it is required of stewards that they be found faithful. Now, if the preacher has no license to originality, but, but rather a call to, to rock-ribbed biblical fidelity, that will mean that when the culture and the scripture uh, come in conflict, well, that preacher may be the face of the public's indignance at that collision. And that brings us to point three, you see. Biblical ministers are sometimes spectacles before the world. For I think that God has exhibited us as apostles as last of all, verse 9. Like men sentenced to death, because we've become a spectacle to the world, to angels, and to men. The world will take some pot shots at those who proclaim Jesus' name boldly and unequivocally. Uh, 
and a, a religionist they may tolerate, so long as that religion is not put forth uh, too long or too loud, or is too radical so that it is unpalatable because someone somewhere feels uncomfortable. Have you noticed that? If the, if the religionist, doesn't matter if he's an imam or a, a rabbi or a Protestant minister, as long as, you know, it's sort of you stay in your box, that's okay. But to the preacher who fearlessly lifts up Jesus, to the minister who agrees with Scripture, there is no other name under heaven by which you may be saved. To the preacher who will unswervingly herald the words of Jesus that the kingdom of God is near. So we must repent and believe the good news. That minister may be made to be a spectacle in our world. He will often be derided by comedians and castigated as narrow-minded by the media. But remember, that preacher is being faithful to Scripture, and that's the call, right? Our Lord said this rather plainly. Do not fear those who will kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both the soul and the body in hell. And so a biblical minister is faithful to Scripture, and at times that will put him in hot water with the culture which brings us to point four today. Biblical ministers sometimes struggle that the gospel might survive or thrive. Biblical ministers sometimes struggle so the gospel might thrive. Listen to how Paul words this. In our age of sort of triumphant Christianity, in our best life now, he says we're fools for Christ's sake. We're not fools for the sake of being foolish. We're not just you know, riding around on a, on a unicycle, throwing things in the air, trying to get everybody's attention like we're some kind of circus show. But we're fools, we're, we're deemed as foolish, as morons, as iconoclasts from some other era. We're fools for Christ's sake. We're weak. We're in disrepute. To the present hour, we hunger and thirst and are poorly dressed and buffeted and homeless. If you review faithful people in Scripture, Daniel was faithful. It landed him in a lion's den, didn't it? Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego were faithful, and they ended up in a fiery furnace. Joseph was faithful, but he ended up in an Egyptian prison. The problem wasn't faithfulness. The problem was there's opposition. Paul was faithful. How does he sum up his ministry? Well, he, he, he shows us in 2 Corinthians 11 and verse 25 a little bit of what it felt like to be Paul. I want you to notice it's very different from the health and wealth preachers on TV who promise your best life now if you sprinkle in a little faith today. Paul says, Five times I received at the hands of the Jews 40 lashes minus one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. Night and day I was adrift at sea. On frequent journeys, in danger from rivers, danger from robbers, danger from my own people, danger from Gentiles. Danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, danger from false brothers, in toil and hardship, through many a sleepless night, in hunger and thirst, often without food and cold and exposure, and apart from all those things, there's daily this pressure on me, the anxiety of all the churches. Isn't it interesting, the thing that most burdened a gospel minister wasn't his own hardship, it was, I wonder how the church is doing. Because... He loves Jesus, and Jesus loves the church. Now, sometimes a minister has to struggle in order for the gospel to thrive. 
I'm humbled and reminded of the testimony of a Romanian pastor. Some of you may know this testimony. A man named Joseph Son. And beginning in October of 1974, maybe it always struck me because that's when I was born, Joseph Son was interrogated for up to six months. He was interrogated for up to ten hours a day, five days a week, and then the guards took the weekend off, I guess. Um, His interrogation was simply because of his faithfulness for the gospel under the Iron Curtain. And their goal of these interrogators was to break him. He was a a white-hot preacher for Jesus in a hard time, in a hard place. And uh, during a particular time of torture in his biography at Pelosi, an officer threatened to kill Pastor Joseph, and this is how the pastor responded. It's humbling. He turns to the guard after all this torment and being told, I'm going to take your life. He said, sir, let me explain how I see this issue. Your supreme weapon is killing. My supreme weapon is dying. Here's how it works. You know that my sermons on tape are all over the country. That was why he was arrested. If you kill me, those sermons will be sprinkled with my blood. And everyone will know I died for this preaching. And everyone who has a tape will pick it up and say, I I better listen to that again, because uh, this man preached and he really meant it. He He sealed it with his own life. So, sir, my sermons will speak ten times louder than before. I actually rejoice in this supreme victory if you kill me, end quote. Now, praise God, right now here in New Jersey, there are no physical beatings for those who are faithful in preaching. Long may the Lord continue that streak. I'm very open to that being the situation. And yet it is undeniably true in church history and even today that that biblical ministers sometimes struggle so the gospel will thrive in an area. Uh, Many have struggled to put food on the table. Others uh, struggle to be there for their family because they're attending to God's family and there's only so many hours in a day. But perhaps the most morale-sapping thing, when I talk to pastors Um, You know, I taught at two different theological schools, training pastors, people were in ministry getting more training. Perhaps the most morale-sapping thing that a biblical minister routinely endures is is point, not point four, but but point five today. Biblical ministers are sometimes slandered for their allegiance to Jesus. And we see this in verses 12 and 13. And we labor, working with our own hands, When reviled, we bless. When persecuted, we endure. When slandered, we entreat. We have become and still are like the scum of the world, like the refuse of all things. So so point five is true. It's right there in the text. Biblical ministers are sometimes slandered for their allegiance to Jesus. Now, to be honest, when I talk to pastors, wherever this conversation has happened, most pastors are not very deeply wounded when the world wounds them. You know why? We expect that, right? We kind of expect that. It kind of comes with the territory. Most ministers that I have met seem most deeply wounded when it comes from the body. Body blows, right? Uh, And it it is a painful body blow. Uh, There is often an unhealthy trinity in our Christian community. Uh, There is Conrad Complainer and Debbie Downer and Eeyore. You've met Eeyore. Things are bad. (laughs) And and Conrad Complainer and Debbie Downer and Eeyore, they all like to strike 
and they can take what, what was otherwise a, a, a glorious Sunday and sort of pour a cold water over that biblical minister. And in time, it can take a toll, and it can dampen the pastor's enthusiasm towards ministry. You ever met a minister who no longer is excited about ministry? Is that profitable to us? Are they very well equipped to help us? Something starts to happen in the, in, the, in the psychology of certain pastors. A pastor starts pastoring defensively instead of strategically and biblically. Sermons become, gee, how do, I, how do I not offend unwittingly? Instead of, how do I communicate this passage most effectively? Now, friends, it is good, it is right, it is necessary for the body to take its concerns to leadership. That's, that's why we have leadership in the church so that matters can be addressed. But, but might I suggest that what is true for all Christians in all our interactions is also true in our interactions with elders and pastors. I want us to consider the wisdom of Ephesians 4.29 in your interactions with, with elders and pastors. Do not let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouths, but only what is helpful for building others up according to their needs, that it may benefit those who listen. Consider the wisdom of Hebrews 3.13 in these discussions and encourage one another daily, as long as it's called today, so that none of you may be hardened by sin's deceitfulness. Friends, if you have something that needs addressing, consider starting your conversation with that elder by reviewing the many things that are going well that God is doing amongst us. And invariably, you'll have to get to the issue that perhaps needs to be set right. But, but think about it. Right? Think about how we interact with one another. Proverbs 16.24 is powerful. And it ought to apply even when we have to press in on sensitive subjects. Proverbs 16.24 says, Gracious words are like a honeycomb. Sweetness to the soul and health to the body. Now it's very true that wounds from a friend can be trusted. But it's also true that a friend's goal is never to leave someone wounded. And I've been in ministry for 20 years, and I have seen godly men break down, leave the ministry, uh, destroy their families. I've seen men beat down, and then I've seen men eventually break down. I saw it in Illinois, I saw it in Indiana, I saw it in Africa, in more than one country, and now I'm here in New Jersey, and I'm meeting other pastors, and I'm going to gatherings and clusters, and I see a lot of discouraged, depressed disheartened men. Statisticians tell us that the average pastor will go into ministry, he will go to seminary, he will spend three years uh, in, in graduate school, he will come out with a large amount of debt, and seven years later he'll leave the ministry. But something's broken, we need to talk about it. So endemic is depression among the pastorate that the most recent E-Free newsletter, they send this to those of you in leadership, uh, uh, the most recent Eastern District newsletter spent time uh, addressing depression in the pastorate. And one free church pastor, I won't name who he is, he's got a pretty good-sized church, four or five hundred. Uh, he writes this, I'm going to quote him. Quote, pastoring is a relational job. Each of us has a certain relational capacity. Normal people in normal times have a certain amount of death, divorce, drugs, and other problems that hit their family. But not the pastor. The pastor's in a war zone that he can't control. The amount of damage we witness and experience is devastating, end quote. Now, 
I'm not sharing any of this because I'm in some deep, dark hole, okay? Right? You know me. I'm usually pretty up, all right? I don't really want to preach this message. I really didn't. I talked to the staff about it. I'm like, mm, you know, because I never want you guys to feel like, well, that was, that was self. No, I do think we have a problem. There's so many people who are leaving ministry, and so many guys that I meet in ministry here in this vicinity are so discouraged. So we probably need to talk about it, and this text talks about it. So awkward or not, I'm going to try to talk about it. Um, there's nothing new in ministry. There's just what's true in ministry. And the thing Paul describes in 1 Corinthians is the same thing that people deal with today. And if you survey church history, and one of, the, one of the nice things of teaching church history for many years in an academic setting is you get to learn that there's nothing new under the sun. So let me just le- read some names to you. Martin Luther, Richard Baxter, John Bunyan, Charles Spurgeon, Martin Lloyd-Jones, and John Piper, and many others have been very open about their struggles with depression in the pastorate. All those men are pretty much ministry heroes. But behind the scenes, there were pain. So what do we do with this truth? I think as you think about those who are faithful in ministry, I want to encourage you to pray for them in some specific ways. Uh, That the spiritual warfare they experience the hard-heartedness amongst the sheep that sometimes the pastor must address, the fact that most church problems arrive someday at their inbox. That can make for a discouraged minister, and a discouraged minister will struggle to be the godly encourager he needs to be according to Scripture. So let's pray for one another. Uh, We're not in a bad place. You guys have been a very gracious church. You need to hear that. I, I think I can speak for Jason as well. You have been very good at this but we probably need to be intentional in these things in 2019. Uh, Friends, elders are human. Humans have feelings. Remember that as you interact with, pray for, and serve alongside us. Now, sometimes it's not slander or depression. It's simply our profession that causes some biblical ministers to stumble and not stay the course. And that brings us to point six. I mean, really, this passage addresses ministry from so many different angles. Uh, Point six is this. Biblical ministers are sometimes slighted by the world's estimation of their vocation. That's okay. It just is. Biblical ministers are sometimes slighted by the world's estimation of their vocation. Paul says, we have become and still are like the scum of the world, the refuse of all things. And we talked last Sunday about those were very picturesque words. Those weren't very polite words. Those were really gross words that he uses to describe that. And so if you think about this, okay, so many pastors have at least a master's degree, uh, and yet their profession and prestige and pay is sometimes less than that of of people in a similar industry uh, who are equally hardworking as a professional. So my encouragement to you, again, is if there is a particular minister who has blessed you, who's been helpful to you, I would encourage you to to shoot them a note or an email or uh, drop them a line. Maybe you listen to somebody on a podcast or online, uh, encourage you to encourage them because there's a a little bit of a a problem in 2019 with this in ministry. I'm grateful for you guys. I have a a file in my desk that you don't know about. When I came here, a wise pastor once told me, every time somebody sends you an encouragement, stick it in a file in your desk. (laughs) And and I have a large file. And because I've met men that open the file and they're deciding whether they're going to quit ministry and they read how God used it and they click back in the game. Now, I haven't had to open that file. There are no tears in my file and it's a very fat file. So this is just truth. It's not truth that we're doing badly at. Are you with me? Okay. So, Jason, for those of us in Christian service, 
know this. If the apostles were treated like the scum of the world, the refuse of all things, don't go into ministry looking for personal validation, or you will likely experience a very different situation. Either you will have to sell out to be a standout, or you will be sold out for Jesus, but you will be left out by those who oppose Jesus. Now, what's true for the faithful minister, my friend, is true for the faithful Christian. See, you can sell out to be a standout in this generation, the world will applaud you, or you can be sold out for Jesus, and you may well be left out. We may not always get to sit at the cool kids' table if we gather around Christ's communion table. And that may be a choice that we each have to make at work tomorrow. This brings us to point seven. Biblical ministers are supposed to be spiritual examples. Biblical ministers are supposed to be spiritual examples to us. The Bible says in verse 14, I do not write these things to make you ashamed, but to admonish you as my beloved children. For though you have countless guides, countless guides in Christ, you do not have many fathers. For I became your father in Christ Jesus through the gospel. I urge you then, be what? Be imitators of me. Be imitators of me. See, the pastor is not just the preacher. He's also an example. Now, every single one of us is an example. The question is, are we good ones? <laughs> We're all examples, particularly as Christians, but are we godly examples? Can we, despite all of our, our flaws and our fallenness, can we be like the Apostle Paul in this? Can we say, be imitators of me? Leave your thumb in 1 Corinthians 6 and, and flip over to 1 Corinthians 11.1. 1. It's on page 1218. 1 Corinthians 11.1, 1, five chapters to the right, 1 Corinthians 11.1. 1. It's, a, it's a short verse, it's a powerful verse, it's a convicting verse, it's a good verse to memorize. Those of you that are parents and those of you that are young people and you have even younger people looking at up to you. In 1 Corinthians 11.1, 1, Paul tells us, be imitators of me as I am of Christ. Be imitators of me as I am of Christ. Don't be an imitator of me in my peculiarities and weirdness and fallenness. Be an imitator of me as I follow Christ. The Christians should be so increasingly Christ-like that others, by being near us, they can, they can get a sense of what being a Christian is all about. Follow me as I follow Christ. See, a minister who can talk pretty but live shabby is something less than God's best. He may well be in the wrong vocation because biblical ministers are supposed to be spiritual examples to us. 1 Peter 5 is very clear on this. So I exhort the elders among you as a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ as well as a partaker in the glory that is to be revealed. Shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly as God would have you to do, not for shameful gain, but eagerly, not domineering those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. That, that is part of the call of ministry is to be a godly example. And so it begs the question, is your pastor a role model or a role player? There are people that learn to speak in a stained glass voice. They're not role models, they're role players. 
Put it another way. Is your pastor the kind of person you hope, at least in character, that your son grows up to be or your daughter would marry? If not, maybe they're just really good at saying exciting things because there's some disconnect. Our culture of celebrity has permitted some pretty abysmal people to fill our pulpits because they talk pretty even though they're not very Christ-like in their living. Now, elders are not perfect, but they are supposed to be godly examples to the flock. Godly examples in their work ethic. Godly examples in their priorities. Godly examples in their actions, in their reactions, in their interactions. Now, if many of these points feel like biblical review, oh, I know this, we went through the pastoral epistles a a couple years ago, Uh, this isn't really something new, okay, then maybe point eight is for you today. Uh, Something that's sometimes forgotten in 2019. If you have a really good, firm foundation on what biblical ministry is, uh, that's great. Listen to point eight. Biblical ministers are supposed to be schooling and sending other ministers into needy corners of God's vineyard. Biblical ministers are supposed to be schooling and sending other ministers into needy corners of God's vineyard. Paul says this, look at verse 17. That's why I sent to you Timothy, my beloved and faithful child in the Lord, to remind you of my ways in Christ as I teach them everywhere in every church. Paul had a Timothy. He had someone that he could send. I can't be there, but the gospel of God needs to be there. The work of God needs to be there. The word of God needs to be there. So I'm going to raise up others and send them out. Paul's are supposed to raise up Timothy's. Paul raised up not just Timothy, but he raised up Titus, the other pastoral epistle. Acts 20 and verse 4, that one little verse of scripture speaks of a whole bunch of people that Paul has schooled up and sent out to strengthen the wider church. In Acts 20 and verse 4, you might write it next to verse 17 in your Bibles, Acts 20 and verse 4, the Bible speaks about Sopater the Berean. So in Berea, here's the guy, he's schooled up and sent out. And then, then he's a, there's the Thessalonians, so within the church of Thessalonians, there's Aristarchus and Secundus, two guys he schooled up and sent out. And then there's Gaius in Derby. so here's another city, and yet even in that location, even for a short period, Paul's schooling up and sending out. And then of the Asians, there's Tychius and Trophimus. Do you see what Paul was always doing? He wasn't just doing ministry. He was pouring into someone so that someone could go somewhere else someday for the sake of the gospel. When, when you read the book of Acts, if you read it carefully, there's what's called the we passages. We did this. We did that. And the other passages don't speak that way. Why does it have we? The we is what, uh, when Dr. Luke, who wrote the book, is indicating that he was present in those sections. So who was Dr. Luke? He was another person that the Apostle Paul ran across, invested in, schooled, and sent out. That's the way it's supposed to work. Otherwise, what would happen if we only had ministers who were incredibly effective in their ministry? What happens when they die? So does the ministry. Uh, What happens when God moves them to Zanzibar? The work that they were at languishes. And so, so we need to have ministers who are schooling and sending. But in North America, we have this view of the pastor as chaplain, and there's a a kernel of truth to that. There is a certain element where a shepherd shepherds, but but the view of the pastor in Scripture seems to be more heavily that his role is discipler. And when we see this as as the pastor pouring into others, schooling and sending, Ephesians 4.11 is very clear on this. 
Ephesians 4.11 says, God gave us apostles and prophets and evangelists and pastor teachers for this reason, verse 12, to equip the saints to do the work of the ministry. So, so what does the pastor do? What does the pastor teacher do? He equips the saints. And within the saints, some of us are going to be called to new levels of service, and it'll be wonderful and scary. And for some of you, it'll be scary before it's wonderful. But it'll be wonderful and scary. You'll be stretched, and the kingdom will be expanded. But we have to invest. Now, there's a final piece to biblical ministry, and you're glad it's a final piece. It means you're going to go home soon, right? So it's for you, Griff. Uh, Biblical ministers at times must be spiritual guardians. Spiritual guardians, which means they may need to chasten those who oppose God's desire in the church. There are some in the church that, you know, maybe you're not walking with God at the moment. Maybe there's a little bit of too much self. Maybe there are weeds within the wheat. And so biblical ministers must be spiritual guardians, ready to chasten those who oppose God's will for a church. The Bible's very clear. He gives three verses on this. Verse 18, some people in Corinth were arrogant, as though I were not coming to you. But I will come to you soon, if the Lord wills, and I will find out not the talk of these arrogant people, twice he calls them arrogant, but of their real spiritual power. For the kingdom of God does not consist in talk, but in power, the power of God flowing through them. What do you wish? Shall I come to you with a rod or with love? in the spirit of gentleness. So, so Paul sort of likens pastoring to parenting in our passage. He talks about being a father. And then he asserts that there ought to be a proper parental balance of, of tenderness and toughness. That's a good parent, right? There's an unswerving love and a line you're not supposed to cross. That's a good parent. Paul has the gall to remind this church that's really into all kinds of mischievous nonsense. The whole book, they're just riddled with problems, right? Uh, and, and, he, and, he, and he says, look, it's not how you run your mouth. It's how you run your life that demonstrates whether or not you're aligned to the kingdom of God. There's all kinds of people. I'm godly. I'm wonderful. I'm, are you? Verse 20 says, for the kingdom of God does not consist in but in spiritual power that you see emanating from their lives the effectiveness that comes from the Holy Spirit. Friends, there were these naughty, haughty Christians in Corinth, and they wanted their way. And they knew how to work church politics in the congregation to divide people into factions so they could lobby for their favored position and get their way. And the Word of God, the Spirit of God, and Paul, the man of God, says these people are arrogant. They would rather be right than righteous. They'd rather win personally than have unity corporately. And there's something wrong in that equation. They were the reason the Holy Spirit gave us four chapters in the book of Corinthians on the subject of unity. It's amazing to me, with all the problems in the church, you've got like incest that even the pagans are upset about, you've got people desecrating the Lord's Supper, you've got people denying the resurrection, you've got everything wrong on marriage and singleness, like Spiritual gifts, they're at war with each other. There has to be a chapter on love between them because you need to separate out the warring. Like, the church is a mess. And one quarter of the book is devoted to unity, to quelling the quarreling among the congregation. And friends, there's nothing new under the sun. The same me-firstism that divided the church in Corinth tears apart churches today. 
And God's answer was to send a biblical minister who would come gently and if need be forcefully. Because a shepherd had two tools. Do you remember that in the Old Testament? There's two tools that the ancient shepherd mentioned in the word of God. There was the shepherd's staff, his crook, and the shepherd's rod. Those are the tools. Now, a shepherd's crook, this is a long staff with a hook on it. The shepherd's crook could reach into the sinner's worst nooks. Um, Sheep are like this. Hey, that looks good. And and we reach down and we want to eat something, right? And if this is forbidden, like you can eat anything you want, but don't eat that, what will the sheep want? Check that out, man. Have you seen that? So we're down here, and and we get into here, and, and sheep have little bitty legs and big fat bodies, and they stick their neck out to eat stuff. They fall base over apex into the crevice, and the sheep is utterly stuck. And what will happen to the sheep? He will either die, unable to get himself out of the ditch he put himself in by eating something that God said wasn't the plan, or a predator will come in their moment of weakness, and they will tear at the soft underbelly and devour that precious sheep. So God had a plan. God sent a man. God sent a shepherd. And he gave the shepherd a tool. And the shepherd has this stick with a hook on it. And the shepherd would look down, and here's this sheep stuck in the hole. And even though it was because of the person's own doing, it doesn't say, oh, well, you got yourself into this. You get yourself. That's not God's heart. He sends a shepherd. And in love, the shepherd reaches down with his stick, and he turns it so the hook is down, and he turns it to hook one of those legs. And the shepherd will gently pull the sheep out of the situation that would have caused its annihilation because of temptation. He's got this tool. Praise God that the shepherd has that kind of tool. He's a good shepherd. But the shepherd has another tool, the Bible says. It's a rod. And this rod was used to keep predators at bay. A shepherd became adept at throwing this rod. They would practice throwing this rod with all this boring watching sheep all the time until they could hit a very small target from a very large distance with a very painful thud. It kept those who would devour sheep from the sheep. That was also part of the shepherd's job. Maybe you've heard this verse. Psalm 23 and verse 4. Though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me, your rod and your they me. The good shepherd and his under-shepherds have both tools. And they use both tools. And that means there may well be times where, where someone won't stand down despite the clear teaching of the Word of God. There will be times when when prayer and a gentle nudge will not make an errant, strident sinner budge from his position. And so there are times when a biblical shepherd will use this biblical tool, God's rod. Woe to the church who has a pastor whose toolkit only has a vial of honey. Or you will be overwhelmed by church bullies. Amen? Yeah. I thank God that is not where Calvary Church is today. Can we say that? We haven't had a single unkind word in a business meeting in the four and a half years I've been here, right? We have had beautiful interactions with one another. I praise the Lord that there is so much loving unity at Calvary. I praise the Lord more that there's passion to see the gospel go. We got Volt on a mission down at Bethany. Uh, We got kids going down on, on a mission trip that's coming about a week from now. We got my kid over in Morocco. But you guys are thinking about the kingdom of God. You're coming alongside our missionaries. How do we pray for them? How do we 
it's a, it's a wonderful time here at Calvary. But the word of God is timeless, and the heart of man is the same. And so let's ask the king to help us stay in the right lane. Would you pray with me today? Father, we ask that you would please bless Calvary Church with servant-hearted leaders and not self-seekers or celebrity cravers. May our pulpit be forever filled with those who carefully, prayerfully, and effectively steward the mysteries of your word to us. And may we grow exponentially by such exposure. We believe that thy word is truth and that man does not live on bread alone. May your word fall on us, feed us, nourish us, strengthen us. Lord, may we not be caught off guard that sometimes shining brightly for you means we may become a spectacle who struggle, sometimes slandered or slighted. And so, Lord, we ask in this 2019 world we live in that you give us courage to keep shining like bright stars in what sometimes is a wicked and depraved generation. We ask, Lord Jesus, for grace to help us keep loving, not necessarily because the other person is lovely, but because they need your love. Give us such an overflow of your love in our heart that your love flows from us to them. Give us hope, Lord Jesus, to keep persevering. Give us peace to keep it all together in times of pressure. Lord Jesus, please raise up a bevy of wonderful spiritual examples here at Calvary that beautifully impact our community and cause our little ones to see Christ-likeness across the congregation in the ages, poured through different personalities and vocations, but that they would see faith and faithfulness in Jesus among us. May the purity and reverence of our lives be an attractive example to others. May they know us by our love. May our speech be ever more carefully, prayerfully, intentionally, and consistently that which builds others up according to their needs. Holy Spirit, make us fruitful disciples who make disciples. May we be a church that consistently and intentionally schools up and sends out well-equipped saints into needy corners of your vineyard in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the very ends of the earth. May you be pleased to use us to reach others, to share your love, to bring your peace, to spread your joy to a lost and hurting world this week. We pray this in the wonderful name of Jesus. Amen.